talking about the virtue of gratitude. We've said that the gospel makes us into radically grateful people. The gospel is not just a set of propositions to believe, but it is a storyline that we are a part of that shapes everything about us, from the way that we um, spend our money, to the way that we love our children, to the way that we invest into our marriages, to the way that we pursue studies. If we are in school, it, it involves everything about our life. It's not just something that you do on a Sunday. It, 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 it comprises the totality of, of who you are. And that we are people who are grateful not merely based upon our circumstances, but as Christians, gratitude is actually something deeper, something that is pushed down, something deeper than just our mere circumstances, so that we are grateful despite our circumstances. And we base this gratitude on the good news that there is a hero of heroes, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who, though he was in the form of God, as we confessed earlier, did not consider equality with his father something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the very form of a servant. And he came to earth to live the life we could not live and die the death that we should have died so that we might become people who are whole despite the fractured circumstances of our life. And so one of the Metrics. one of the, the, the virtues that we want to embody as a church is we want to be a people who are grateful. Jonathan Edwards says that true gratitude arises from a foundation laid before our circumstances of love to God for what he is in himself, established in the first place, not in our circumstances, but in God's own excellency. John Ortberg said that gratitude is the ability to experience life as a gift. It opens to us wonder and delight and humility. It makes our hearts generous. It liberates us from the prison of self-preoccupation. And Jesus' half-brother James says that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, friends, in the passage that we're about to read, Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. And on his way to Jerusalem, where he will be killed, he sends ahead 72 disciples. And they go to every town and village on their way to Jerusalem, and they share the good news of the coming kingdom. And they come back to Jesus pumped. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, even the demons believed us. They came out of people. And they tell stories of, of what the Old Testament prophesied. That those who were blind received their sight. That those who couldn't hear all of a sudden began to hear. That the, lame, that the lame leaped like deer for joy. And that demons came out of people. Just at the word that the disciples preached about Christ's coming kingdom. And Luke tells us immediately after they came back to Jesus, Jesus prays to his father a prayer of thanksgiving. He says, Lord, thank you that you have hidden the secret of the kingdom from the wise and the learned. And you have given it to little children, to nepios, to those who are humble, as we saw last week. And just after that, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says what we're about to read. So if you're willing and able, would you stand and we'll read Luke chapter 10, verses 21 uh, through 24. This is the word of the Lord. Give our attention to it. It comes to us in love. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said, Thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, would you take this text in Luke chapter 10 and would you massage it into our hearts to apply it to our life? Would you show us the power of the beauty of the gospel in these words? And would you challenge us? Friends, would you? Would you ask the Lord right now? Would you just say, Jesus, would you challenge me in the preaching of your word? Soften my heart. Would you do that? And then if you would, would you pray for me? That the Lord would speak through me. Father, thank you that you're here and that you intend to challenge us with your word. Have your will done, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When you see this image behind me, tell me what you see. It's an image with a very venerable history. It's an image that first appeared in 1888. It's an image where there are more than, um, there's more than one person in the image. Do you see them? It's a very famous image. It's called the Boring Image. It's not an image that's actually boring, but it's named after a man named Erwin Boring, who in 1930 wrote a paper on this. He was a psychologist, and he wanted to study the ways in which people saw different women in this picture. Some saw the elderly woman, and some saw the young woman. Do you, do you, see, do you see the two people in this image? I, I don't see anybody saying yes. Do you see the people? Oh, thank you. All right. Yeah, we're still awake. We see them, right? Notice how you can see these two people. You can't see them both at the same time, can you? It takes intense concentration to see the young woman with her gaze turned back from us and then to shift again to see the older woman looking toward us. What's interesting about this image is just as there are two people in this image, so there are two very distinct stories of Christmas that we hear often. For some, the holidays is a time of warmth, of hearth and home. It is the cultivation of the best of human virtues. It's a season to let others merge into traffic ahead of us, to let them cut in line. It's a time to be patient. It's a time to send out cards. It's a time to reconnect with loved ones. It's a season to put our best selves on display, to throw parties, to extend generosity. It's a time when we practice being the people we so wish we could always be, seeing the good in humanity always and everywhere, and being good ourselves. And today, almost everyone believes that narrative to some degree And many see nothing else. But for Christians, Christmas is a celebration of the pivotal chapter in God's story where God himself came down to us. 
It is a way of looking at the exact same data and seeing a completely different perspective and image. The father sends his son into the world, not as a warrior hero, as one would expect, but as a baby, a hard-to-imagine hero born to a backwoods couple to redeem his people. In the presence of Christ in the world, Christ's mass, which is where the word Christmas in the 10th century comes from, is a celebration of Christ's dwelling in our midst, the anointed one who has come for us. And as such, the celebration of Christmas is just one part of a much larger story of God's redeeming work. And it's the twist of the story that we celebrate at Christmas time. And it's the twist of the story that the wise and the learned, or the proud and the arrogant, or the theologically confident, or the Bible scholar can so often miss. Because the power of the story of Christmas is the power that God comes to us in ways we do not expect. Isn't that true in your own life? Think about where you are right now in your own relationship with, with your family or the relationship with your spouse or the relationship with your roommates or the relationship you have with the Lord. Think about how he, over time, has made you into the person he's made you in such surprising ways. When I was a young boy, I broke more bones than I could count. And it's as though the Lord breaks our bones because our bones are set They are reset in a way that is harmful for us. And so, so much of our life is the constant breaking of our bones so that Jesus can reset our lives, can reorient us in line with the gospel because we are broken with a kind of um, unholy scoliosis. He reshapes us and he makes us. And into the space of Jesus surprising us with how he came to us, we see a couple of pretty amazing things that even the wise and the learned and the Bible scholars of the first century missed, but things for which the kings and the prophets longed. And I just want to share very quickly two very important things to remember about Christmas. Number one, the gospel can be lost in the static of competing stories. The gospel can be lost in the static of competing stories. What do I mean? What exactly are these things that Jesus says that the Father has revealed to little children? In this context, what are these things? Well, if you go back up in Luke, if you have Bibles or you're looking at the Bible on a screen, go back up the text. And these things are the things that the disciples just saw. They saw the blind being healed. They saw the deaf receiving back their hearing. They saw the lame walking again. They saw exorcisms. They, they saw the amazing work of God turning the world back to rights in their midst. And they saw it and they believed it. They said that Jesus is the coming Messiah. And we see the signs of his rule and reign breaking into the world right now. But it's the Pharisees and the scribes and the Bible scholars and the, the, the churchgoers and those who kind of wear Christianity as a kind of a, a moral straitjacket to keep things all right in their life, who kind of use the gospel for social one-upmanship in society. Those people miss it. The learned and the scholars miss it. But the humble disciples, shocked that Jesus could use them, they begin to get it. 
And Jesus says to them, the kings and the prophets long to see the things that you see. The gospel can get lost in the static of competing stories. Um, One of the hardest things as a minister of the gospel is to retell this story in as many ways as possible for you to hear it again with fresh ears. Because you know, have you ever, um, you know, some of you guys are, are um, you know, do radio transmissions, some of you are pilots. You know that, like when you're in, um, when, you're, when you're talking on a walkie-talkie or on a radio, or if you're a pilot and you punch the talk button, like you can talk. But nobody else in that frequency can talk whenever you're talking. And for a lot of us, we know the story of the gospel. We hear it all the time. We raise our children up in it. But somebody has taken that frequency and they pushed that talk button. And you can't control it. And they're just talking, 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 talking. And, and pretty soon, you start to listen to what they have to say. And in our culture, our culture is a culture of competing stories. And Christianity is the story where we are trying to hold out the story beneath every story. The thing for which you most ardently long is found and you are complete because of this great story. But somebody's got their finger on the talk button. And so the media sweeps us away into some tangent or there's some larger story of how economic prosperity is actually how you achieve the life that you really want or how, you know, whatever it is. There's a Hundreds of these different stories. You see it in every commercial. You see it in every TV program. You even see it in many, many churches. The kings and the prophets longed to hear the gospel afresh. And here we are with the opportunity to hear it again. And we have to remember the gospel amidst all the static of our competing stories. Are you with me? Does that make sense, that analogy, Connect. We have so many competing stories. Listen, just this Christmas, think about how much of your mental energy has been used up thinking about gifts. Like, think about how much anxiety you have about what your credit card bill is going to look like at the end of January. Like, that's great. But listen, like, that's the competing story. And how many of us have just sat and dwelt and said, guys, isn't it amazing that our family gets to come together to celebrate this amazing gift that Christ came for us. Isn't it amazing that we are part of a much bigger story? And the reason why we have to fight this competing story all the time is because you are like, and I, I will speak to myself for a second, I'm wholly inconsistent. And I'm a minister of the gospel. And I'm inconsistent all the time. And so I would imagine are you too. Because what do your children see when they see the frenetic pace that you, um, at which you run before Christmas? What do they see that you value? What do they see that you take pride in? What do you get most excited about? When you think about coming to, to worship on uh, the, the Sunday before Christmas or going to the Christmas Eve service, think about all the excuses you have not to go to those. I mean, our list gets long and arduous. But if we're going to be a people who recenter our lives around the story of the gospel, we've got to recenter our lives around the story of the gospel. And we've got to tell it again and again and again and again and again and again in such a compelling way that our children get it and they know it and they grow up in it. And it becomes the default mode. I dare say, if I were to pull the children in our church and I were to say, you tell me everything you know about Star Wars versus everything you know about the, the storyline of redemptive history, George Lucas would win. 
And that's an indictment on us. And we really want our kids to know the gospel. Well, do you tell it? Do you Bring them into the liturgy. We light candles not because we're trying to be traditional. We light candles because it tells us of the prophecy, of the prophecy candle. It tells us of the faith of the Bethlehem candle. It tells us of the joy of the shepherd's candle. The rose is the color of joy in the Christian, in Christian history. And it tells us of the hope that we have in the angel's candle. Guys, we have got to tell the story because there are there is competing static for the storylines of our children's lives and of our own lives. And we believe it. And we're inconsistent. So allow the Holy Spirit to convict me and convict you and convict all of us and say, pull back together. You are people of one story. The story how God twists, surprises us with the twist, with the twist in the story. And he sends not a warrior king, but he sends a baby. And it is through the Christ child that the world is redeemed. It's an amazing story. Filmmakers um, have been inspired for a generation. Storytellers and filmmakers have been uh, inspired by a guy named Joseph Campbell who wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Anybody ever read that book? It's this this really fascinating book that George Lucas, legend has it, read before he created Star Wars. It was a huge influence on George Lucas when he developed Star Wars. And basically what Joseph Campbell says in this book is that there is a narrative arc of every great story. Every great story has certain things at play. A character struggles against overwhelming odds. And he seems on the edge of defeat. And suddenly she discovers a hitherto unforeseen ability or insight that enables her to triumph dramatically and decisively. And then everybody lives happily ever after. And into that narrative arc, are arcs we hear all the time, For example, we hear all kinds of narrative arcs about there's a person in oppression. And they should not be oppressed. So let's free them of that oppression. However we want to define what oppression is. Or there's a person who's not cared for, but we want them to be cared for. And so let's provide a way that we can care for them. Or there's a person who, um, something isn't fair as we define fairness. And so we want to free them up. And so this narrative arc happens all the time on the left and on the right. And I say all that just to say this, that the story of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the one who came to be for you what you so need. Was he taken care of? No, he was crucified so that you might be taken care of. Was it fair? He was the son of God. No, it wasn't fair. He gave up his rights so that you might have rights as a son or a daughter of the king. Well, was he, was he liberated? No, he was oppressed all his life so that those of you who feel oppressed can be liberated in Christ because he is the one who ultimately has overturned oppression. He has overturned fairness. He's redefined it completely in who he is as a person. And he invites us into that story. But would you hear the story again? Because we so often believe competing narratives that are taking us away from the good news of the gospel and making it all about us. And it's more than dangerous. It will kill you. It'll destroy you. Not only do we learn that the gospel can get lost amidst the static of competing stories, but we also learn that the Father will never lose you and Christmas is his commitment to you. 
that your father will never lose you and Christmas is his commitment to you. The kings and the prophets long to hear it. Years ago in redemptive history, they, they longed for justice and they saw only a shadow of it. But I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, Genesis 3 says. And he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Or the psalmist, this longing for justice, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash all those who commit injustice to pieces like a potter's vessel. They longed for a community. And you see the shadows of it in the Old Testament. And I will make of you a great nation, the Lord said to Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. They heard it. They heard it. They longed for it, but they never got to see it. But you do. The kings and the prophets longed for a leader. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. A star shall come out of Jacob in numbers, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the, crush the forehead of Moab, and it will break down all the sons of, of Sheth. Or Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will raise you up. He will raise up a prophet from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him that you shall listen. Listen, this longing for justice. This longing for community, this longing for a leader. They all longed for it, but they never got to see it. But you do. Don't miss it. They long for somebody to know their pain. The psalmist said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Where are you? Oh God, my God. I cry to you by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Guys, there's not enough space or time for me to go through all the Psalms that speak about the one who was to come to be the fulfillment of the things for which we so ardently long. Christ was in the prophets. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. For to us a child is born, as Holly read, to us a son is given. I will make you a light for the nations, Isaiah 49, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He would be pierced for uh, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53. Daniel chapter 9 speaks of a coming anointed one, a prince. Micah 5, 2 says, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, can anything come out of that? Zechariah chapter 6 says that there is a righteous branch and out of his place shall come one who will rebuild the temple of the Lord. Malachi 4 says there will be one in Elijah who will come, who will be the mouthpiece of God to bring the good news to the world. They longed for it, guys. They didn't see it. They longed for it. They wanted to see it. And yet you do. You get to see it. Do you? Does it shape your life like it should? Because even though the gospel can so easily get lost, it gets amidst all the competing static of the stories that we often hear and begin to believe and that take us away from the gospel. Your Father in heaven will never let you go. He has got you. And Christmas is a reminder of his commitment to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life.
He has come to dwell with you. And yet he's going to surprise you with how he reminds you of his love. We expect economics, power, and good jobs. We expect life to roll the way we dreamed it would roll when we were younger. It's different, isn't it? We expected power, but Jesus comes in weakness. We expected a royal son, but Jesus was the son of a peasant couple. We expected him to deliver us from political tyranny, and Jesus delivered us from spiritual tyranny. We expected him to conquer Rome, but he was arrested, tried, and executed by the Romans. We expected to anoint him with oil, but Jesus wasn't even there to be anointed because he rose again. We want to earn our way to the Father, but Jesus invites us to believe in his finished work on our behalf. We expect him to tell us how to get right with God, but Jesus gives us his righteousness by grace. We expect our lives to be easier with Christ, but Jesus shows us more of our need with him the longer that we walk with him. We expect our marriages to be easier with Christ, but Jesus, who is our true husband, makes us better spouses, especially when marriage is hard. We expect Christianity to be merely personal, but Jesus invites us into a covenant community, which is essential for our growth in the gospel. All of these amazing paradoxes are ours because Christ surprises us with how he comes to us to pierce through our competing stories and to remind us again and again that the Father's commitment to us is firm and that he will never let you go. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the great reversal image. The culture sees the gospel as one thing, and you've got as Christians to see it as something totally different. They see it as a laughing stock, a has-been, and we see it as the most modern thing in the world because it's infinitely applicable for every age and stage. It never grows out of date. Do you believe that? Do we talk about that? And if you don't, parents, Christmas is a wonderful time to start to do that because we are a people of one story. And all of our individual stories have been grafted in to this one beautiful narrative that we will tend to lose if we don't, again, look at that Christ child and remember that he came for us to win us, to give us a new identity in him and to shock us and surprise us for how he works in through us even today. So this Christmas, Trinity, let's be the kind of church that is shocked by how radical God's love is for us. And let's be the kind of church that beats the competing stories to the punch because this story is a story of real care for those who don't feel like they're part of the church because we, who of all people, know that we don't measure up, ought to open our arms to them. This is a story of real fairness because Jesus, the one who deserved to be treated fairly, was not so that we who always cry foul, are treated more than fair because he welcomes sinners into his presence. And that this is the story of the one who did not find freedom, but he gave up everything so that he might come to us who were oppressed and he might provide a way for liberty and for freedom by himself being oppressed. This is our story. This is Christmas. And this is the great reversal of the gospel image. Do you see it? I pray we see it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to be mistreated so that
those of us who do not deserve mercy would be shown mercy. Thank you, Father, that you sent your son who wasn't treated fairly so that those of us who just cry out for fairness in the world can be given something far more than fair. We can be given a new relationship with the Father in heaven. Father, thank you that you are the one who was who sent your son to be oppressed so that we who long for liberty might be set free. Thank you, Father, that you have supplied all of our needs in Christ. Let us not ever get tired of telling the story again and again and again of how you came to live a life we could not live and die a death we should have died. And maybe celebrate that, celebrate that great story this Christmas with hearts that are grateful for your finished work on our behalf. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. Before um, the ushers and the deacons come to um, pass out our offering, I just want to remind us that every, every year this time we have an offering called the Christmas offering. And today is that offering. We're going to pass the plates around as we normally do one time. But it's both for our general offering and for our Christmas offering. If those of you who would like to give above and beyond your normal gifts above and beyond any commitments you made to the building, to that Christmas offering, then we welcome you to do so. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray for New City, who is going to meet at 4 o'clock, about 7 miles down the road in North Tulsa. And I pray that we're able to bless them with a Christmas gift. And I also pray that as I look at many of your faces and know many of your stories and know many of us are struggling together in counseling and coming to Scott and me and meeting with the elders and we're trying to really apply the gospel to our life. We need resources as a church to help subsidize those of us who need professional counselors. And so we want to try to provide that also with this offering. So let me pray for us, and then as you feel led, give joyfully. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a generous church. And may the generosity well up within us because of how grateful we are for what you have done for us, Lord Christ. Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. Bless these tithes and offerings, we pray now. Would you bless New City Fellowship? Lord, I pray that you'd help them to meet their budget this year. I pray that you'll strengthen them. They can reach North Tulsa with the gospel to be the countercultural community you've called them to be and help us to encourage them in that endeavor. And would you help our families, help this church to be a place that provides resources for those who need help amidst all the competing stories that we so easily believe. Would you recenter our hearing and reset our sights on the beauty of the crucified, buried, and risen Lord Christ? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.